Okay, a reading this morning is uh, from Romans, of course, <laughs> and uh, it's from chapter 14 and all the way through to uh, chapter 15 and verse 4. So please. Watch from the screen or watch from your mobile phone or your Bible, or if you wish, just listen. And we start off on verse 1 of 14. Except the one who has faith is weak, without quarreling or over disputable matters. One's person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you trust them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. 
Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who, ins who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have faith and hope. Thank you, Alan. Uh, well, welcome again. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonathan. If we didn't have a chance to meet, uh, I want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, happy Mother's Day to uh, the mothers among us. I also want to acknowledge that um, Mother's Day is not always a celebratory day for some. Um, and perhaps you or someone you know um, is dealing with some pain today. Uh, could be the pain of not being able to be a mother. It could be the pain of not having good memories of what motherhood might look like. Uh, so we just want to acknowledge that uh, this morning. Um, and my encouragement to you is the words of Jesus, uh, that in the kingdom of God, we're given a spiritual family that supersedes our biological family. Not that the biological family is not important, but there is a greater family, and God is able to give many mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters. Uh, so I want to say a special welcome, a special welcome to everyone here. Um, uh, we are going through the letter, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We're, we're doing it backwards, actually, uh, which is a bit strange. Uh, we're doing it backwards because primarily uh, so many of us have done it forwards and we've been kind of used to this sort of lecture systematic theology style and I love systematic theology and it's very important and we'll get to that but the point is we often read Romans as a lecture and we don't read it as a letter. So by starting at the back we get to see who these people are and we get to see what was going on in their community. Now, I'm just going to warn you, we don't have enough time today to go through everything that's in this section. And for that reason, we're actually going to come back to it again in about five or six weeks, all right? So today, this is going to be kind of the real take on what's going on in the church in Rome. <laughs> we often can look back at the early church and sort of put the rose-colored glasses on and say, wow, it was so perfect. 
here we're looking at a church that has some tensions in it. You know, and I found it sort of slightly amusing that on a day where we recognize uh, the gift of motherhood, that we have a passage where people are fighting over vegetables. I just thought that was really, really, I don't know, maybe, uh, only my wife laughed a lot. <laughs> maybe that's just our house where people fight over vegetables. But, but there is something about this, right? In, in any home, we talked about the beauty of the table and what it means to be invited and welcomed in. But let's be honest, homes can be filled with tension sometimes too, can't they, right? Because none of us is perfect. We all bring our own uh, strivings. Well, we come this morning, we're looking at this, uh, the title of this message is A Community That's Craving Peace. Um, maybe you grew up in a home where you didn't have peace and you just, you just wanted that idyllic image and you've been chasing that for a long time. The church of God is a community that craves peace as well because we were built for peace. We saw that last week. Um, we're, this is sort of the major sections we're going in. This section in chapters 12 to 16, we're looking at what it means to be a community that's called to peace. Um, and within this section, this is sort of the various things we're covering. This morning, we're on this one, that we're a community that's craving peace. And we're looking at Romans 14, 1 to 5a. You'll see, we get right back down to it, the second to last section with habits of a transformed community. So, this is going to sound more like problems this morning than solutions. That's because we got to work up to the solutions. Uh, but we're just going to take a moment today to be real. As we look back uh, to Romans chapter 16 and we look out at the church and who was there, we saw that the church is a really unique community for three reasons. One, the scope of the diversity of the church is amazing. I mean, this thing started thousands and thousands of years ago. It started in the Middle East. And here we are in Australia, and it's in company, encompassing different races, different languages, different cultures, different generations. The scope of the diversity of the church is huge. Everyone of any race, of any background, of any gender, of any culture is allowed to come. We saw the diversity of the church. We also saw the unity of the church. And the thing, the only thing that can hold this, this big, massive, diverse community together is something supernatural, and that's the peace of Christ. And that's what he established on the cross. And we as a church have the opportunity to practice that peace and to pass it on. And that's why it's important that we cut together is because we need to demonstrate that peace to one another. We'll sort of hear more about that today. Well, we want to tackle the question this morning, why do tensions arise in a community that's built for peace? Why do tensions arise in a community that's built for peace? Now, you may have your own answer to that question. You may have sort of your, your, your own kind of theories on that. You might be th look, thinking about WDBC and you're like, well, you know, pastor, let me tell you the problems with this church are blah, 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 and you already got your list ready, Right. That's not the sense in which we're asking the question. I'm trying to ask the question from a more of a heart level. Because I think Paul is tapping in here to this, to this sense of oughtness. Ought the church to be a place where if you need love and grace and forgiveness, you find it? Ought the church of all places to be a place where weak people are allowed to be weak, where strength is used to love and care for others, 
want to tap into that sense of oughtness. So, so why do tensions arise in the community? There's some really interesting questions that are kind of sub-questions that I think are raised around this, and that is, who has the power in the church? Who are the privileged? Who holds the leverage? And this is really practical. When, when things break down and you, you get people sort of on two sides of an issue or there's an event that happens and, and, and there's this sense of, ah, oh, this, isn't, this isn't really what I want church to be. How do we get through it? Well, the big idea this morning is that we forfeit peace when we forget who the church is for. We forfeit, we give up, we lose peace when we forget who the church is for. We'll come back to that uh, in a bit. Um, right now, I'm going to, to just, just stop and pray. And then we're gonna, we need to do a little bit of, little bit of building a bridge. We got any kids who like Legos? I haven't finished Lego Masters yet, so don't tell me the, the end result if you know the end of it. But, but I love Legos, and, and I love the amazing things they can build. And, and one of the things they build in Legos sometimes are these structures that actually can bear weight, which is pretty amazing. Well, we're going to try to build a little bit of a bridge that goes, goes back from our world today to this time where Paul is writing. And I'm going to ask for God's help as we try to do that this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we have your word. I pray that you would open it up for us today so that we can begin to just tap into some of these, uh, these tensions that are highlighted. Lord, our goal is not to ultimately just have our best life as we can imagine it. Lord, we want your best. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would, would do his work among us to shape us for your purposes. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're, we're going to just, to build this bridge, we've got to tackle, tackle four questions, all right? So we're, we're going we're gonna to sort of pull out the contextual Lego bricks, and, and we're going to try to piece this together. There's four questions we're going to look at. Paul talks about the weak and the strong. Who are the weak and the strong? Why does he call them weak and strong? Why is Paul even getting in the middle of this <laughs> with a church he hasn't even been to? And whose side is Paul on here? All right, so first of all, the weak and the strong. Who are they? So, sorry, right. uh, they don't do much sort of cartoon graphics of people without muscles. So I, I just, we had to go with a picture of a weak link in a chain that, that, that was breaking. And, and I thought, you know, that's kind of fitting because sometimes our attitude towards the weak is that, hey, why aren't you holding up your end of the bargain here? Uh, and so, sorry, uh, they don't have the droopy, the droopy little muscle. Um, who are the weak and the strong? The weak are, they're Jewish Christians. They've recently returned to Rome. They're likely poorer and less socially established. And they're specifically noted here, they have a desire to keep Jewish dietary practices as well as the observance of special days. Okay, so the weak here are not, you know, people who are not intellectual or um, they're weak in a, in a matter of faith. We'll come to that in a minute. Now, what do we mean by the fact that they recently returned? I want you to imagine kids that, 
you know, someday in the very, very, very distant future, you know, just go with me on this in your imagination, right? Someday in the very distant future, you're going to finish school, all right? It's way, way out there on the horizon. I know it seems like you're never going to get there. One day in the distant future, you're going to finish school. And one day in an even more distant future, you're going to leave home, right? And, and then I want you to imagine what it's like to come back to that home. That's what these Jewish Christians sort of felt like. So we know that Jesus died in Jerusalem. That's where he was killed. That's where he rose from the dead in Jerusalem. Christianity started in Jerusalem. Well, it spread all the way up to Rome, and it was brought there by Jews who were in Jerusalem around the time that Jesus died and rose. And so they took the message back home, up to Rome, which is in the middle of the empire. But around 49 AD, one of the emperors named Claudius decided, you know what? I think the Jews are the cause of a lot of problems here. And he said, all the Jews, you need to go. I want you to imagine mom or dad or your nan or your pop looking around the dinner table at one point saying, you know what? The problem is you. <laughs> and you need to go. And you suddenly, it doesn't matter what school you were in, it didn't matter what, you know, what you had plans, what your friends were, it didn't matter any of this, you just had to leave. And then suddenly that person passed away. And you realize you can come home again. Well, that's what happened. Claudius the emperor, he died. And within about four or five years, they lifted up that, they, they removed that law that said the Jews had to leave. And so all the Jews said, hey, let's go back home. Let's go back to Rome. Well, a lot can happen in about four to five years. Imagine you leave home when you're like 12. Your little sister or your little brother is 10, maybe nine, eight. You leave home for five years. You come back home, you're 17 years old, Right? You're working on getting your driver's, your driving license, you know, you, you, maybe you picked up a job at KFC or Macca's and, and you, you're making it on your own. You come home, you're like, hey fam, I'm back. You come, you sit down, you look around the table. Your 10-year-old brother is now 15. And he's like, uh, sorry, you don't sit there anymore, I sit there. And your sister, she's now 14. And the conversation at the table is different. The dynamics are different. You know, you used, to, you used to have a certain place, you used to have a certain position, a certain authority, but all of a sudden you come back home and everything's different. Well, that's what these Jewish Christians are feeling like. They had to reestablish themselves in jobs and careers. But they still had the memory of what it was like. So who are the strong? The strong are, again, this, this is not absolute in every sense. It's not, it's not as if you could draw a line directly down the middle between Jew and Gentile. But majority, in speaking of the majority, the strong, most of the strong are Gentile Christians. They've never left Rome, right? They didn't have a Jewish background. They weren't raised in the traditions of Israel. They didn't read the Old Testament. They never left Rome. They were more established in society. They, they, they had a more prominent role. They were higher up the social ladder. And they embraced the liberty from Jewish traditions, right? Christ died 
as the one who fulfilled all the requirements of the law. So why do we need to go eating these special Jewish foods? Why do we need to go observing these special Jewish days? Isn't the point of all this that Jesus has liberated us from it? And so you got these two camps, the weak and the strong. Why does Paul call them the weak and the strong? It's very important. It's probably with respect to their faith, their trust in Christ. He's not saying those who have faith and don't have faith. He's not drawing a line between Christians and non-Christians. He's talking about people whose faith maybe is a bit small and a bit weak and people whose faith feels strong and robust. Now, why is Paul getting involved here? He sees these groups splitting up. He sees the family of God starting to fall apart. And maybe that's been your experience. You've been in a church and it started to split. It started to break down. You know, we go through the book of Philippians and in that letter, Paul is pleading with Christians and he's saying, hey, can you guys get along here? If you've ever been in a part of a church that, that has conflict, where's your focus? Your focus isn't on Jesus, is it? Your focus is on which side you're on. Oh, did you see what they did today? Oh, I can't believe it. Can you understand? How could they even think that? How could they even say that? This is the kind of conversation you get in on the way home from church. Instead of driving home from church thinking, isn't Jesus magnificent? Isn't that gospel amazing? Think about, think about the hope that we have, right? When, when you're in a part of a church that's in conflict, the, the, the focus shifts. It's not, it's not an upward focus. It's, a, it's this us-them sort of focus. And Paul sees the very fabric of this community that Jesus died to bring together. It's starting to shift apart. And Paul's like, no, 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 we can't have this. Now, which side is Paul on? <laughs> I encourage you to, I want you to pay attention to this graphic. Seldom do you find a graphic that shows exactly what you want it to say. But I actually think this is, this is exactly what it wants to say. Paul says, the strong are right. Paul says, I'm in the strong camp. If you want to pin me down doctrinally, on the issue, Paul says, you don't have to eat these special foods. There is no food here that's not clean. But what's he doing? He's walking towards the weak. So forget the wrong. <laughs> he, he's walking towards the weak. He says, I'm in the camp of the strong, but I'm not going to set up a trench and I'm not going to put up a barbed wire fence and I'm not going to say, all right, we got to hunker down and let's, 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 put our, let's put our people, you know, at, at the sentry posts and, and let's give them the special criteria and let's arm them with, you know, the right questions to say, what brings you over to this side? Paul says, no, the strong are right here. Being a Christian is not about observing a special diet or even observing a particular day. It's about trusting in Christ. And if you have a trust in Christ that's, that, is, 
that strong and robust, you'll understand that. But in practice, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to go stand with the weak. I'm going to camp on their side. But Paul, doesn't that mean you have to be a vegan? (gasps) He's like, okay, I'll be a vegan. But Paul, you're allowed to drink alcohol. Well, I don't need to drink alcohol. There are a bunch of teetotalers over there. Paul, you don't need to limit yourself like that. Paul says, I know. But I'm going to go over there. I'm going to walk toward them. I'm going to set up camp with them. Here's the overview. I suggest to you that a church without peace has forgotten three truths about its identity in Jesus Christ. There's three things we forget. When we lose peace, it's because we, we've, we, we've lost sight of something. We've forgotten it. It's either passed from our mind or something else has become bigger. There's three things. The first thing is we forget that we're only accepted because of Jesus' work. We forget that our very presence in the community of Christ is solely because of a personal invitation from the master himself. And that I'm invited on the basis of his work, not on the basis of my pre-qualification. Not on the basis of my right understanding. My goodness, how much did I have wrong? How much do I still have wrong? I don't even know how, how, how wrong I am on these things sometimes. How grateful I am that Jesus didn't just die for the people who got it. How grateful I am that Jesus just didn't die for the people who, you know, had a passable moral standard. None of us has a passable moral standard. None of us got it. The Bible says we all like sheep had gone astray, but the shepherd went after the lost sheep and he brought them in. He picked them up one by one. He brought them into the kingdom. And so we forget, when we lose peace, we forget that the sheep that are here are the ones that the shepherd went and got. We're only accepted because of the work of Christ. You might look at him bringing some sheep in and you think, is that a sheep? That doesn't look like a sheep to me, but it's in the shepherd's arms. Second thing we forget is that we're each accountable to Jesus' judgment. You see, once he brings you in, he doesn't bring you in as, say, hey, welcome to my fiesta, welcome to my, my, my party, you know, just make yourself at home. He brings you in as the, the chief shepherd. He brings you in as the Lord. He rose to be your Lord. That's what Paul is saying here. We live for the Lord, we die for the Lord. Jesus rose to be your Lord. And so, be careful We forget that we're each accountable to his judgment. And the last thing we forget when we lose peace is that that we're interconnected. That actually it's not simply about being moved closer to God, but it's about being born again into a new relationship. Like you're actually birthed into a new family. You're adopted into a new community. So the people that were already there are now your brothers and sisters. This is why the the worst churches are the churches that feel like social clubs. Because it's the antithesis of what the church is. 
It's not a group of people who have just rocked up and said, you know, don't we all have a common interest here? <laughs> Let's get a little club together and make sure it fits our purposes and our needs. Oh, man, it's, it just makes your skin crawl. The growing churches, the healthy churches, are the churches that embrace their identity as ones that have been born in, grafted in, they're, an or, they're, they're new organic spiritual relationships. All right. Just a few reminders. The church is a group of people who are accepted. And so welcome one another as Jesus welcomed you. Raise your hand if you've ever, if you're part of the welcoming team here or you've been part of the greeting team here. Yep. You guys are doing a great job, by the way. Thank you. I encourage you in that ministry. That's a great ministry to have. And I enjoy it, but I got to say I'm terrible at it Sunday morning. My head's not in welcoming. But it's so important. When Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, accept the one who's weak in faith. He's literally saying, welcome the one who's weak in faith. Back in verse 7, we're not there yet, but in verse 7 of chapter 15, Paul would say, accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. I want to just have a little thought exercise at the moment. What if Christ accepted you the way you accept one another? Does that fire your heart? Does that give you all the warm fuzzies? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I love what John Stott says about this. The welcome we give, the second paragraph here, the welcome we give others must include respect for their opinions. Jesus is our Lord. We must live for him. Because he is also the Lord of our fellow Christians, we must respect their relationship to him and mind our own business, for he died and rose to be Lord. In the first paragraph, he says, we're not to turn the church into a debating chamber whose chief characteristic is argument, still less a law court in which weak persons are put in the dock, interrogated, and arraigned. When Paul says, do not pass judgment on one another without quarreling, he envisions somebody who, there's sort of two expressions of this. One is kind of that fake smile. It's like, hi, welcome. The other is kind of that disapproving frown of like, really? I want you to imagine walking into heaven. How horrible would it be if Jesus is like, hi. Or he's like, well, I guess you're here after all. I mean, it's horrible. That's not the gospel. The gospel is... That because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I have the expectation that when we pass from this life, that we are welcomed in, that we're embraced. I mean, the Bible says angels are busted out the tambourines and the guitars when a Christian, sorry, when a new person becomes a Christian, when they repent and turn from their old life and follow Jesus, right? 
My, my hope and dream and expectation is that when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to be there with his arms wide open and he's going to wrap his arms around me and he's going to give me the biggest hug I've ever had. And he's going to say, I have been so excited for you to be here. Paul says, welcome one another like that. It's an interesting thought exercise, isn't it? What if Christ welcomed us the way we welcome one another? We're accepted. We're also going to be judged. And here the point is, trust Jesus to manage and account for his servants. I feel like we get this in the workplace. Some people don't always stick to it, but we get it in the workplace. Hey, look, not my job, not not my business. Jesus is Lord of all. We should be careful not to climb up onto his throne and to pass a verdict on his people. He's the only one who's allowed to swing the gavel. He's the only one who's, who's able to say, and I'm going to share this story with you because not... I know I have permission, and he'll tell you himself. Here's my story on this. I was leaving that bustling metropolis of Burke, and I was heading out home. We lived outside of Burke, and we got onto, just about to turn onto the Winaring Road, which goes to Winaring. And as I turned onto this road, this is good sort of prayer time and thinking time. And this particular day, I had a lot of angst in my spirit. I've been trying to disciple some people. I've been trying to, to, to kind of show them the goodness of Jesus, show them the glory of Christ. And I've been trying to kind of be a, be a good representative and just say, look, look how good Jesus is. Why don't you consider giving your life to them? And you know, and it felt like two steps forward, three steps back, five steps forward, two steps back, six steps back, one step forward, 10 steps forward. It just felt all over the place. And I, and I was complaining in my spirit. I'm in the car and, and, and I said to God, God, I'm done with Stephen Cole. I'm done. And, and I don't often get and, and what feels like a strong sort of, not quite audible word from God, but let's put it this way, an impressing upon the spirit. I don't often get that, but I got it in this case, and it was immediate. And it was, Jonathan, who are you to say you're done? I'm not done with him. Why do you think that you are the one who says when people have gone too far or or, or aren't able to change or or aren't able to to receive grace? I thought, fair call. (laughs) And I drove straight to his house. And I put my angst aside and I had a heart-to-heart conversation and I said, Stephen, I said, do you know how much the Lord loves you and wants you? 
Will you respond to him? See, it's so easy. So easy to sort of climb up into the, into the big chair, you know? Climb onto the executive desk, bang the gavel. I'm done. Order in the court. You over there, be quiet. You, you're in contempt. You, da 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 da. It's not our gavel. I'm not the shift manager. Lastly, family. We belong to each other as members of Jesus' house. Yeah, sorry. If you, you don't know who Stephen Cole is, he was a, he's a lovely friend and brother in the Lord. And he was, he was an associate pastor here for the past four years. I laugh at the thought that I was going to give up. <laughs> I was ready to give up. God does an amazing work. We belong to each other as members of Jesus' house. And so we come to the table as equal shares in God's grace, bound together by a common name and banner. I asked you kids to envision what it might have been like to leave home at 11 or 12 and you're brought back at 17. You, you, you come back at 17 or 18 or you know, whatever it is and, and you show up at home and things are a bit different. You know, they've moved your stuff out of your bedroom and it's in a box in the garage. You, you, you don't have your seat at the table anymore, right? All your favorite foods aren't in the pantry. They, they, they're on a new diet plan and you, you don't know anything about it. And, and so you, you've, you've shown up at home and you're trying to fit in and you're wondering, do I still have a place here? That's when a wise parent, a mother, a father, a grandparent will take you by the hand, look you in the eye and they say, hey, we share a name. You are one of us. When you, went out, when you went out into that world, you, you represented one of us. I tell my kids this all the time. I said, when you, when you go out the front door, you represent our family. More importantly, how much more importantly for us in the church and how much better it is that we don't represent just our own name. We represent the name of Jesus Christ. It's his name on the back of your jersey, his name on your jumper, his banner over your life. And so we belong to one another. We rejoice with others. The truth of the matter is the church exists for Christ. It's his name that is over our names. We belong to Jesus. I'm not allowed to say who's in the family, who's out of the family. A few takeaways. First of all, I encourage you to, I organize these takeaways into attitudes and actions. So the first, you know, sort them out how you will, but attitudes and actions often impact whether we have peace. So a few things not to do on the negative side, stop creating your own category of Christians. We do this so subtly. Oh, he's a good Christian. <laughs> oh, they're, they're, they're a bad Christian. Actually, there's Christian and not Christian. There's believer and not believer. Right? The Apostle Paul can create strong and weak. I, I trust that the Spirit's speaking through him, but we don't need to invent many categories. Secondly, don't freak out if others don't believe everything that you believe. 
All right? One might be right, one might be wrong. You both might be wrong. You both might be right, but you don't see the whole picture. Don't freak out. When you get angry at a Christian, stop and ask yourself, why? Why am I angry? Before you send the email, before you hit send, please, please, please. (laughs) Before you hit send, ask yourself, why? Fourthly, before pulling somebody up, which is a great Australian phrase, by the way. I love that phrase. Before pulling somebody up, ask, what will I pull down when I do this? When Paul says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, the word destroy there is literally to tear a building down. And so the picture is, if Jesus is, is, is building something in somebody else's life, be careful in, in you pulling them up that, that, that you're not actually taking other bricks out of the wall that Christ is putting there. Again, now this is not to say that, that, that there's no place for rebuke, there's no place for telling the truth, there's no place for correction. Yes, all those things exist. But when you make it personal, and if you go in like a bull in a china shop saying, hey, I'm here to make sure that you are back in line, stop for a moment and say, is there anything I'm going to destroy, is there anything I'm going to trample on here that God's been trying to grow? Now, on the positive side, some things you can do. Welcome other Christians from and into your heart. Have a heart-level connection with one another. Jesus didn't go on the cross like a man punching a time clock. He went on the cross in anguish and agony. It was a heart motive for him. He loved us. Paul would say, the love of Christ compels me. Be compelled. Welcome others with love from and into your heart. Distinguish between essential and non-essential beliefs, right? If you don't believe Jesus is the son of God, you're not a Christian. That's an essential belief. If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you're not a Christian, right? We can say that and that's okay. There's other things that are not so essential and you may have a great opinion on it and you might be able to back it up with all your reading and bloggers and and scholars and everything. But it might not actually be a reason to say you're not a Christian. Thirdly, resolve to live and die for the Lord who bought you. That's a massive statement, but honestly, you're accountable to him. And finally, restrain the liberty of your faith as acts of love for one another. I I dropped off the line there. (laughs) We have liberty because of our trust in Jesus, but our love that comes from Jesus actually acts as a restraint sometimes to the full liberty. And that's a conscious choice we make. It doesn't mean we're any less free. It means that love constrains us. All right, let's pray. Father, help us to... Be real with one another about the tensions, about the the problems, about the difficulties. Help us to share grace with each other. Would you bless us, God? In your name we pray. Amen.